0: Talking about discipleship, but I'm doing the sort of sequel, which is how do you keep on being a disciple? So, Stephen's been talking about being a disciple and the interesting, curious encounters that Jesus has and what that illustrates for us. I'm trying to talk about the perpetuating of that through not just a couple of months of enthusiasm, but long years, right? And I can remember wondering when I was in my 20s, will I still be a Christian in my 30s, let alone my 50s? So, I'm, I'm talking about that trajectory. and. I thought this would be a good, useful text to, to have until you read it. Because <laughs> I've got a problem. There's a problem here. It says, throw off everything it hinders. Sin, you know, run with perseverance. The race marked out for us. I have a problem with muscular Christianity. You know, that, that, that suggests that Christianity is biased towards masculinity, maleness. And it's, you've got to be athletic to be a Christian, a real Christian. And it it loves this language of athleticism and driving through and pushing through and taking risks and going on adventures and manning up. I mean, I know that's not the text, but perhaps it is in your Bible. (laughs) But anyway, this this is an obsession that Christians have got even today. It was true in my day at university. There was a heck of a lot of that talk. And I think, why have I chosen a text that is problematic just for that, not least for the other things? But... um, I'm going I'm to start by subverting the text, helpfully, by, sh- by introducing a Christian into the room whose picture is going to come up. Um, his name is William J. Barber II. And I, I was back, back in May 2015, I was sitting in the front row of a church, Judson Memorial in Greenwich Village, and um, he walked on, he literally shuffled on <clears throat> with crutches. And I thought, this is my man, because this is going to help me in, untangle the meaning of this text. It was, you see, in, back in 1993, William J. Barber II had been diagnosed with, uh, I think it's ankylosin uh, ankylosing spondylitis. Is that how you say it? Anybody medical? Ankylosin spondylitis. It's like an arthritic disease, painful arthritic condition that is incapacitating. It affected his spine. And this was way before, this was like years before I met him. And he was in hospital for months. And was literally laid out in a bed, and this is how he says his experience went. I could hardly talk to the nurses and people that came to visit him from his church, and he said uh, they'd keep on saying to me, "We want you to come back. We think that there's more for you to do." And he would just rebuff them and say, "No, it's not. It's not going to happen." And every summer in the previous few years, something had happened. His wife's mother had died, his father had died, his daughter had had to have serious surgery, his son had had some um, vitamin deficiency that was problematic, and he'd been told on this particular summer in 1995 that he would never walk again, and he appreciated people trying to be encouraging, but he kept on thinking, "Lo, this is too much, I can't live with this ongoing pain, and he said, uh, one night, as he lay moaning under the weight of despair, a lady I didn't know came into my room in the hospital in a wheelchair. And she said, I heard you were in here. I've come to pray for you. And I said, Mom, I really don't want to talk to you right now. And she said, Well, you can't get out of bed, so I'm going to talk to you anyway. And she had lost her two... They'd amputated her two legs, a double amputee. And she said, Look, they have taken both my legs off. Now I'm going home. I'm going home to get some new ones in a wonderful phraseology of, like, I'm going home to Jesus to get my new legs. But he hasn't finished with you yet, and you've got to go out, and you've got to finish what you've been, what you've been starting, what you've been starting. And, and he, he was mystified. She wanted to pray, so he wouldn't, let, he wouldn't let her touch him. She wouldn't let her hold his hand, but she prayed for him anyway, and then she went. The next morning, he talks to the nurse and says, I think I want my mother to come and play the piano in the lobby, and I'll perhaps make it down and... Um, and perhaps I'll sing some hymns with her, and that might start me on my road, road to recovery. And by the way, can you get that uh, amputee that was in here in a wheelchair to come back because I want to talk to her? And the nurse said, we have nobody with amputation on this floor. It, it's just not happening. You know, she can't come. And he sort of called her his amputee angel. <clears throat> so, I mean, he, he's, he was basically able to become uh, not just... Uh, emotionally, spiritually, mentally restored, but he actually got up and was able to do some walking, albeit with crutches. And then years later, he is the same William J. Barber II, who's leading a modest group of clergy and activists in the state legislative building in Raleigh and getting the Moral Mondays. This is called Moral Mondays. He started a movement called Moral Mondays. And it went Ballistic. so they were singing we shall overcome they were blocking the doorways. He was getting arrested with his you know with his <laughs> Zimmer we call it a Zimmer in the UK or don't we call it here, but it's a walker and And then he had hundred protesters the following Monday, and then it eventually became so big There was tens of thousands of people turning up and it was happening in other cities as well in other states and He's now currently working closely with um, Liz over at Union. I think uh, with the Poor People's Campaign. So he's taking the campaign that Dr. King started in 1968 and he's resurrecting it. That's a man that knows what it felt like to give up, to stop walking, and then he's become able to re-engage and keep going. So when you read, you <clears throat> go back to the text now, the whole text, when you read the words that you should not give up, that you should push on through, and you should run the race, Think of a man who has to literally shuffle to the podium. And that is your example. That's your image. That's my image of what it means to be this type of Christian. It's all about resilience. It's not about athleticism and whether you've got the right-looking, trim, fit body. It's about resilience. And I want to just have us think about what is the secret of somebody like William J. Barber II? What is the secret of his resilience and have we got any clues in this uh, quite large text, <clears throat> quite long text? And I think that the thing that I want to carry with us today is that it's about living with suffering and living with hope or joy. Living with suffering and living with joy in a way that is completely interwoven. Suffering and joy, like the warp and the woof. Is that how you say it the, in the tapestry, woof or woof? Is it, you know, when you're doing a tapestry and you're weaving <clears throat> and you have the sort of, the two directions... <laughs> I'm looking at you. Anybody? My wife is a weaver. (laughs) Anyway, you've never heard of it. right. Warp and woof. (laughs) Look it up. But it's the two necessary parts of life, right? The the, the mosaic, the, the tapestry. It's about Jesus saying, for the sake of the joy, he endured the cross which is really the epitome of what I mean. It's the, the, the warp and the woof. It's take the joy, take the suffering, and don't think that one replaces the other or just is a simple case of one follows the other. The secret of staying power, continuing to be disciples, not just becoming disciples and, and being disciples for a few months, but staying there is to grasp that this is for the long haul and to let, let suffering and joy live together in your lives. You know, this city, New York, is number one exhibit for capitalism. We don't have any doubt about that. It's, it's about, it's, it stands for fiercely individualistic greed, actually, if you're to be honest. I mean, this city is built on that sort of presumption that each one of us can make it if we try hard enough. <clears throat> That's putting it bluntly. And Christians have quite often adopted that or given it a sort of baptism and a, a slightly sort of uh, just gently. Uh, adopted it as if we also can go along with that and have a simple version of life that says we have a basically capitalist vision of the good life where we we attain a certain level of comfort and we have enlarging horizons and it's based on mostly our effort. And then we work in Jesus around the edges. That's what a lot of Christianity is about. It's basically a capitalist vision of our good life with Jesus worked in around the edges. But that's not going to get us to the finish line. That's not the way that we're going to end up persevering or enduring. Because we've created, so many of us have created our lives like a playpen. And we have got a mentality that we have to just be cushioned and live in a comfortable playpen. And we've organized out all the abrasive aspects of life. But according to this text, we need to be closer to suffering than that. We need to learn a lot from being, we can learn a lot from being with people who've experienced a lot of the raw and abrasive aspects of life. It's like learning suffering by proxy. And I think that that is what I'm saying is if you can live your life with suffering alongside joy, it means you are letting yourself be impacted in an empathetic way by the suffering of others at least and putting yourself closer to them. And um, Interchange has got this image, this logo of the three crosses, right? Jesus was crucified with two other people on either side. And it struck me that what an important part of the story that is, don't be forgotten. There were a thousand crucifixions that year, the year that Jesus was on a cross. And we have to reckon with this reality that there are many hills with many crosses that have not apparently changed the direction of the world now we believe, I believe, that Jesus' death and resurrection fundamentally altered the whole course of history forever. It was momentous. But it didn't then mean that suffering was somehow eradicated or that suffering was extracted from the atmosphere that we breathe. And there are some Christians, I've met them, who have what we would call technically an overrealized eschatology. That's another word to look up, all right? Over- they think that heaven is up there, Right? And all you've got to do is be the sort of Christian that has long enough arms to reach the zipper and you run like crazy and unzip and all of heaven comes down on earth right now. And it's, it's not going to happen, mate. That's not the way God works. There is a lot of suffering that has to be reckoned on. And just being close enough to God or open to the Holy Spirit does not mean that you live in a world of over-realized Jesus present. We believe so strongly that the world has never been the same since, since Calvary, since that cross moment. But we also have to reckon on the reality of suffering, not just in other people, but also in ourselves. And then we get to the tricky bit, which is all about chastisement. And <laughs> we'll leave out the language of your vision. but this, how, how can we rehabilitate the language of chastisement? Is that helpful? It sounds pretty, pretty weird, if not offensive. So I'm going to quote Ross Duthat, who had a chronic illness that put him out of action for many months, for a whole season of his life. And this is literally just what he says, and it helps me. What I learned from my illness is, not, is that chronic suffering can make belief in a providential God, if you have such a thing going on, feel essential to your survival, no matter how much you may doubt God's goodness when the pain is at its worst. To believe that your suffering is for something. That you are being asked to bear up under it. That you are being, in some sense, supervised and tested and possibly chastised in a way that's ultimately for your good if you can only make it through the schooling. All this is tremendously helpful to maintaining simple sanity and basic hope. If God brought you to it, God can bring you through it. Read an aphorism in one of the doctor's offices that I frequented. A neat distillation of what I wanted and, more importantly, needed to believe in order to get up every morning and just try to hold my world together for another shattered seeming day. So I'm just saying, suffering in your life, in my life, can sometimes be understood in that language of testing, supervised testing. Um, It's not always the most helpful metaphor. And I wouldn't say this was the main metaphor that the Bible uses. But suffering in other people and suffering in yourself. We're talking about vulnerability, not athleticism, even though that might seem to be the drift of of the text. It's about vulnerability here. Being able to look more fully into the face of suffering and not shrink with bewilderment and not pretend it isn't there. And we run this race, if necessary, on crutches and leaning into the belief that God, who is invisible and sometimes unheard, is still real. And that's when we need to lean into him more, not less. The cross of Jesus on a God-forsaken cliff, which was called Golgotha, Calvary, the shape of the skull, that was the 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 meaning of the name, it stands, if you like, in the world for those thousands of other crosses and those other skull-shaped, craggy, abandoned waste places where there is any type of threat or oppression, places of terrible neglect, places of horrible abuse, places where there's been a huge waste of human potential. So I'm saying if we want to live as disciples and to endure and push forward, we need to name that suffering in the world and allow for our own vulnerability, and to do so without any shame, and to learn that to be close with others and to be impacted by their suffering is part of what will make us able to live this life that Jesus is calling us to. Mother Teresa said, God cannot fill what is already full. God cannot fill what is already full. The heart must be emptied in order to be filled with God. So I think that we're called to this type of emptying of our lives, of our own self-reliance, our own self-sufficiency, our own completeness, in exchange for which we want to live more vulnerably. I think it's about pushing back against the culture of America and of this city at the beginning of the 21st century that has absolutely no idea what I'm talking about. The idea that you would somehow dismantle your self-reliance and, self, you know, and become vulnerable, that you would embrace suffering as a way of pushing forward and becoming more resilient. Our society knows nothing about what that means. It it says that's a ridiculous idea, but don't ignore it. Now, the other thing that I've got to mention is not just the suffering, but the joy. I did say that it's both together, and I really mean it. And it's really hard to, uh, to not just get dragged into this idea that we've got to live our lives as those who are feeling the pain, and then it starts to have an effect on us and starts to make us feel like we're not allowed to have joy. You know, on the week that Jesus entered Jerusalem, he weeps over the city walls. He looks at the city walls and he thinks about the history of the city and he thinks about what they're going to do to him, possibly, and he weeps. But then within a few hours, there's this irrepressible joy from the the kids, from the children, and he refuses to let them be silenced. It's like it's totally appropriate. In fact, it's needed, the celebratory uh, sound of kids shouting in the streets. And then I think about Jesus on the cross, and I think about maybe Mary of Bethany who anointed him on the Monday night with that expensive perfume, maybe the scent of that nard was still on his body, even on the cross. And he can inhale it with whatever breath he has left in his body. The joy or the intimacy of that community that he was part of in Bethany lingered even on the cross. And we have to know how to retrieve joy, because it says, do not grow weary in your souls and lose heart, somewhere in the middle of that. Do not grow weary and lose heart. And you can't get to joy just by saying to people in a sort of glib way, don't worry, we're going to get through this, which is the common wisdom, isn't it? But it's actually quite offensive in its banality. It's so offensive to say that when people are suffering. When you think about the way that we started this century with yet more stories of land grabs and and violent invasions and genocides and climate crisis, you can't just say, oh, it'll be all right. You know, you'll just push through. We need something more substantive to give basis to our joy. And it's based on an empty tomb, the the empty tomb of Jesus, because the cross was followed by the resurrection. And so Christians, and you may not be uh, able to get to this point yet, but Christians have this fundamental connection with not just the cross, but the empty tomb. And the resurrection of Jesus was the inauguration of a world that is a new world, not just for the end of history, but starting to come in and invade our own current world reality. And it's a new world that was started, at the resurrection is destined for the whole of our world so that we won't waste anything that we've built that's good or even half good. So I feel, and this is deeply embedded in me, that the joy that has to be there alongside the awareness of suffering is based on the resurrection of Jesus, that death cannot just pull us all into its vortex and say that that's the end of the story. There has to be this room in our lives to say there's something called resurrection or joy that is pushing back. And even if I'm half awake, and if I'm doing things that seem to have such little relevance and significance given the scale of the threat against all that we try and do, it's still going to be retrieved and included in the new world that God is bringing about. So maintaining a posture of joy, as long as we turn it around in terms of Jesus and the resurrection. And how do we get suffering and joy into our lives? It's not just about individual heroics. It's not just about saying, I'm going to deeply uh, invest in, in reflection and prayer and meditation, and I'm going to Uh, work out how to be closer to the poor, and do that in my own lonely and individualistic way. It's got to be about friendship. And so one of the things that I'm going to leave us with is this idea that this text is not about individuals, even though it sounds like it is. It's about the family and about the community coming together. Lift up your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees. It's referring to Exodus 17 when there was Moses on the mountaintop, and there was well, Aaron and her and they were lifting up his arms and holding his arms up so he could continue to pray. And then that's how the Amalekites were defeated. But the idea of it's not just about individual heroics here. This is about us finding friendship. And the language about not shedding blood, uh, you haven't resisted to the point of shedding your blood, it reminds me of Jesus in the garden on the last evening, Thursday night, when he was praying and he was in that olive grove, and his disciples were supposed to be supportive, and they kept on falling asleep. And so he'd be like, in one part of this olive grove, on the ground, clawing at the dirt like an animal and shedding blood instead of sweat. And then he'd go back and see if they were awake because he needed them, and they would be falling asleep. So he'd sort of shake them awake, and he'd say, keep praying. And then he'd go and then come back, and it went through the whole night. Jesus, in that moment of his crisis, of his understanding of what was next for him, needed to have the community, needed to have his friends. So I'm saying the secret of being a long-standing, long-term, staying Christian, staying disciple Christian is friendship. Even though the world is trying to separate us and make out that we should be strangers to each other. If it wasn't for that, the miracle of people who don't belong to your family by any form of biology or whatever... Still being able to uh, hold on to you through thick and thin, that is a miracle in this society that we live in, which always wants to make us strangers to each other. So the secret, if you like, of long-term staying power, embrace the suffering, name it, whether it's your own or others. Embrace the joy, the resurrection possibilities of everything you do having some meaning because it's wrapped up in this new world. That Jesus is making and it's about friendship and letting people hold on to you and not being ashamed of vulnerability that shows that you need them so with each breath we could say these words the cross we will endure it the resurrection joy we will embrace it and the body we will stop being strangers to each other that's my take on this text. So I would check it, read it when you go home, in whatever version you've got, and try to remember suffering, joy, and friendship as the key to understanding it. So let's just pray for a moment. <clears throat> Jesus, we pray that we would learn how to be not just disciples for a season when it's comfortable, but disciples for the long haul. Thank you for those that have been our witnesses, the ones that we've looked up to. Help us now to do this race, to do it with perseverance. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Flesh will fail Bones will break Leaves will steal